Good afternoon, you beautiful people. This is Clint Russell, your host of Liberty Lockdown. Uh, today is Wednesday, March 22nd, and I will be interviewing Carol Roth, who was a former IB, I believe, investment banker, brilliant lady, uh, absolutely has her finger on the pulse of the economic turmoil we're in. But before I do so, I wanted to uh, give you some news stories that I don't feel are getting adequate coverage, and it's important that you are privy to them. So let's start off with a piece about our censorship industrial complex. This is a piece from The Federalist titled, The U.S. Government is Building a Vast Surveillance and Speech Suppression Web Around Every American. You already knew this, but here's some additional details. The federal government has awarded more than 500 plus contracts or grants related to misinformation or disinformation since 2020. One predominant area of research pushed by the Department of Defense involves the use of AI and ML technology to monitor or listen to internet conversations. Uh, ML is machine learning AI, artificial intelligence. Originally used as a marketing tool for businesses to track discussions about their brands and products and to track competitors, the DOD and other federal agencies are now paying for-profit public relations and communications firms to convert their technology into tools for the government to monitor speech on the internet. The areas of the internet the companies monitor differ somewhat, and each business offers its own unique AI and ML proprietary technology, but the underlying approach and goals remain identical. The technology under development will mine large portions of the internet and identify conversations deemed indicative of an emerging harmful narrative to allow the government to track those threats and adopt countermeasures before the messages go viral. With AI and ML identifying in real time the origins of supposed influence operations and how the messages spread, the government will have the ability to preempt the amplification of the speech, squelching even true reporting before the general populace has an opportunity to learn the news. Cough, cough. Uh, Nord Stream Pipeline? Ring a bell? Lab leak theory? Ring a bell? All right, yeah. Uh, to appreciate fully the danger this poses to free speech requires Americans to consider the use of that technology with these seven additional details. They didn't go on to uh, give you a bunch more details as to how it works, but I think you guys are smart enough to uh, to guess at most of the answers here. The one thing I wasn't privy to, and I should have been, it makes perfect sense, but they have devices that are uh, transcripting and monitoring RSS feeds. For those that aren't tech savvy when it comes to the podcast world, an RSS feed is how you get my voice right now. So that means that almost certainly my show, as well as every you know dissident political uh, podcast out there, is also being evaluated by AI and ML to see if I am propagating a dangerous narrative so that they can stop it before it catches fire. Uh, obviously, for my own personal needs that's uh, that's deeply disturbing but it should be for you as well if they're willing to go to that extent but obviously this technology traverses far more than just these lowly podcasters it in fact is everyone using any aspect of social media which is basically everyone and this is not uh exclusive to foreign actors this is everybody domestic foreign we're all in this together as they say so i think it's very uh important that you realize that this is not going away. These tools that were created under the COVID regime are being transitioned into, for instance, uh, there was a, I believe it was a congressman from Arizona who asked during the banking crisis, which began two weeks ago, if they could use this type of technology to potentially prevent 
uh, messaging from spreading that would cause bank runs. Even if the banks are insolvent and advising your audience that perhaps they should withdraw their money would be prudent, they want to be able to suppress and censor and ban and deplatform people that are bringing that kind of message to you to prevent a panic because it's a systemic risk or whatever. And I think that under the purview of national security, you should expect that these tools are going to be used uh, very broadly unless curtailed by the people demanding that they be so. And I don't see at this point enough political will to do so. And it's vitally important that we replace the people that don't, don't have the courage or the knowledge or the belief in liberty to do so themselves. Obviously, Thomas Massey would be one of the few that actually identifies this problem and is willing to speak out, but he is unfortunately one of a handful. The piece ends with, with Democrats, the legacy media, and many Republicans all in on the government's effort to censor misinformation and disinformation, it will be extremely difficult for the public to recognize the risks free speech faces, especially since those trying to sound the alarm have already been falsely branded purveyors of disinformation. That would be me. Uh, a chance remains, though, that enough ordinary Americans will hear the message before it is too late and demand Congress close the censorship industrial complex. Exactly right. We don't have a lot of time left. Uh, if the if they once they have these tools in place, which they do, and they're only getting better, you can expect it to be a very significant fight for them to relinquish that level of power and control. And you got to be on it. You got to be on it right now. You can't just allow this to continue. If you want to be able to have any semblance of free speech, I mean, constitutionally, you're supposed to have that, last I checked. So the fact that they feel as if, you know, you can have a, a congressman asking if you can censor people that are talking about banks being insolvent because it might spur panic. Uh, yeah, that should disturb you deeply. Because at that point, they're essentially saying anything, any narrative, even if true, which, by the way, much of the anti-vax narrative during 2020, 21, 22, all the way up to today, was in fact true. There was deep reason to be concerned about the safety and efficacy of those vaccines. And yet, almost everybody I know that was willing to speak about it bluntly was deplatformed. And by the grace of God, I, I got through <laughs> somehow. Um and I'm sure many of you are the people that were deplatformed. So you already know this firsthand. Well, imagine if we are now facing economic dysfunction and they can use these same tools for that purpose. What if they want to catalyze some sort of propaganda or narrative against Vladimir Putin to justify World War III? And anybody countering that narrative in real time with the truth, I might add, you got to keep in mind, I'm not talking about actually preventing people from spreading lies, which, by the way, is also protected under free speech. And you should certainly be allowed to do that as well. But I'm saying they will actually be able to censor and deplatform people for telling the truth, the truth. Orwell. Hello. Yeah. 1984 is upon us and I don't like it. Transitioning now to a little bit about the COVID origin story that we are not allowed to discuss in most places, but fortunately, Twitter now allows us. Chief Nerd tweeted out an EcoHealth Alliance's research grant from the NIH, which spanned 2014 to 2019, which, by the way, I have had Dr. Andrew Huff, who worked directly under Peter Daszak at EcoHealth, that confirmed all of this. Uh, they report the following in their progress report, quote, in collaboration with Ralph Barrick of UNC Chapel Hill, 
will use the SARS-CoV reverse genetic system to generate a chimeric virus with a mouse-adapted SARS-CoV backbone expressing SHCO14S protein with 10% sequence divergence from SARS-CoV-S. This chimera or chimera replicated in, in primary human airway epithelium using the human ACE2 receptor to enter into cells. Look, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but if you've read enough about the COVID virus itself and the ACE2 receptor being what flagged or, or set off red flags for many of the scientists that were looking into this, that's that was their interpretation. And the fact that you now have hard evidence that in fact, EcoHealth Alliance worked in collaboration with Ralph Barrick of UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I think that's about as close to a smoking gun as you will get that they were in fact engineering this virus for what it became and whether or not it was intentionally released, I'll let you decide that. But very important that people are aware that this virus and its origins <clears throat> do not begin and end either in the Wuhan uh, wet market or the lab itself. It appears quite clear to me that in fact, this research began under Ralph Barrick's purview, who's an American. That's notable because we're trying to place all of the blame on the Chinese and the CCP. Uh, Champagne Joshi replies with leaked Moderna and NIAID material transfer agreement to NC Chapel Hill. So I, I think that, you know, without having a, enough of a scientific understanding to, to confirm this, I think it, I thought it was important to, to bring it to your attention because uh, I think that they're going to try and pin because the reason I bring it up is because the, they recently had a vote, a bipartisan vote, where everyone in Congress uh, voted to disclose all of the confidential information as to the origin story behind COVID. I don't believe they're going to include this in that. Now, I hope to be proven wrong, but I don't think I am. And when the story is told and all of the blame is laid at the feet of the CCP, I think it's very important to realize that that is only most likely maybe a third of the story. And in fact, the the research that was be fu being funded through NIAID, which Fauci was responsible for, and NIH, it was in fact a American uh, gain-of-function research study. And it was, in my estimation, outsourced to China, to the Wuhan lab, because gain-of-function research had been banned in America or put on moratorium under the Obama administration. And I think that's why they were doing it overseas. And I think that it's uh, it would be very foolish to assume that we were funding this research in the Wuhan lab and we had no idea what was going on, particularly given what I just showed you. Something to chew on, huh? Well, let's get into the, the Fed news because I had Carol on this morning. Uh, we had not gotten the latest from the Fed, and I thought that you guys would be interested to know uh, that Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve has decided to hike rates a quarter point more. And most people were expecting them to hold steady. I haven't looked at the markets yet to see how they're reacting. It's, it's an interesting dynamic because had they cut rates, I think the market might have thrown up on itself because that would have signaled that the weakness is real. So in some ways, there's this, this uh, counterintuitive thing that's happening where if the Fed hikes rates, it signals strength, even if the strength isn't real. 
So <laughs> uh, it'll be very interesting to see not just how the market responds, but also Bitcoin itself. Um, I, I really don't know how to read this. And I know a lot of people have been asking for me to give an update on the real estate market, the broader economy. I, I can't give you guys a tremendous amount of clarity because I don't know for sure that the Fed will will maintain this interest rate hiking cycle. It seems that they have uh, the fact that they were willing to hike a quarter point, even though they had promised a half a point as of a month ago, but that was before the banking crisis. The fact that they're still willing to do so signals that they are pretty damn committed to uh, creating disinflation or deflation. <clears throat> uh, just cutting cutting the inflation rate. Like they seem to be very dedicated to that. The Federal Reserve seems to be dedicated to that. What's bizarre and makes this extraordinarily hard to, to evaluate is that you have essentially QE that's happening on the, in the backdrop because of this, uh, this backstop that was created through the Fed, through the FDIC that allows for many billions of dollars worth of backstops to the banks. And there should have been insolvency there and there should have been liquidation of those treasuries at a loss. And that's not happening now because the FDIC, thanks to the printing press, now has essentially an unlimited line of credit by which they can acquire, <laughs> allow the banks to offload what would otherwise be toxic assets, which are these treasuries or mortgage-backed securities that are underwater because you'd have to hold them to expiration or duration uh, in order to get your full money back. And now you don't have to do so. And you don't have to realize those losses. You can essentially sell at par, which means face value, what you acquired them for to the FDIC so that you remain liquid, so that you remain solvent. It's a, uh, it's an interesting shell game. It's a, it's a push pull simultaneously. You have the interest rate hiking, which is a pull. And then you have the FDIC you know, all mid and big size banks, uh, depositor insurance guarantees that is essentially a push and which is stronger, you know, that it seems to me that they continue to seek a, what's called a glide path or soft landing. And certainly given that we've already seen, you know, bank runs, uh, failed, they did not, they did not get a soft landing, but, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how bad things get. My, my personal opinion is that Jerome Powell knew that this is this is the path that they had been on. In fact, in I think it was 2013 or 14, he warned in one of the Fed meetings that they knew. They knew that what they were creating was going to eventually be a, a problem with longer term duration debt instruments because they understood that maintaining interest rates or the Fed funds rate so close to zero, the, the zero bound, zero percent for over a decade would create what the Austrians might refer to as malinvestment. And that's what happened. And now you have all of these banks that are sitting on these assets, but they're now able to offload them to the FDIC. So is this enough of a Band-Aid to, or a patchwork to allow the economy to essentially continue to drag on? I think it could be, but my bet is on no. Um, simply because I think that the amount of bailouts that they would have to do would ultimately be too inflationary. And I think that the Fed being committed towards lowering inflation will ultimately create a recession. And that's my expectation. 
I, I think that it's highly probable that we will be in a technical, legitimate recession by the end of this year. Um, I could be wrong. Certainly, they could go full QE. They could, at the very next Fed meetings, they could reverse course and they could cut the Fed funds rate, in which case I will almost certainly be wrong. But um, I'm not so sure. I think that their intention is to defend the dollar. I think that all of the things I've been talking about over the past two weeks with you guys about the the move from the BRIC nations, uh, specifically China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and Iran to uh, migrate away from the petrodollar system, which is the US dollar's reserve currency status, made makes me lean towards um, the Fed really doubling and tripling down on defending the dollar. Because if to, to explain it very simply, if the dollar stops being the primary currency of trade overseas, which will take years to unwind because there's lots of contracts and things that are already in US dollars and you know that will have to come off the books. But if that's a trend that stays in place, well, then those dollars which exist, like you can't just make them disappear. Well, they will come home because they won't need to be used overseas so much. And, and once those dollars, those trillions and trillions of dollars start to hit our market, well, then you're looking at a hyperinflationary period. And I think that the Fed sees the writing on the wall. That's my read of it. And I think that's why they're gonna to continue to hike rates to try and defend the dollar's purchasing power by which they might delay that day of reckoning and give themselves time for a central bank digital currency. That's my analysis. I hope it makes sense to you guys. If it doesn't, please leave a comment down below. I'll be happy to answer additional questions. Um, I know that's a pretty complicated and maybe even convoluted answer, but I'm just, I'm dealing with a lot of factors here that make a, a hard and fast answer uh, really an impossibility. I'd be lying to you if I said, yes, recession tomorrow. You know, it's like, no, it's not that simple. So take it for what it's worth and uh, be savvy. Make sure that you're, you're looking after you and your loved ones first and foremost. Realize that much of this is above uh, our capacity to control and we can only control what's in front of us. So lock in, focus there. Hope that helps. Before we get into the interview with the great Carol Roth, I have a tremendous uh, speech that was given to Congress by George Galloway, a British House of Commons member back in mid-2000s, I believe. And it was right after the Iraq War and the toppling of Saddam. And uh, just listen to it. It's beautiful. It's a proven fact. It's a proven fact that these forged documents existed and were being circulated amongst right-wing newspapers in Baghdad and around the world in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Iraqi regime. Now, Senator, I gave my heart and soul to oppose the policy that you promoted. I gave my political life's blood to try to stop the mass killing of Iraqis by the sanctions on Iraq which killed a million Iraqis, most of them children. Most of them died before they even knew that they were Iraqis, but they died for no other reason other than that they were Iraqis, with the misfortune to be born at that time. I gave my heart and soul to stop you committing the disaster that you did commit in invading Iraq. And I told the world that your case for the war was a pack of lies. I told the world that Iraq, contrary to your claims, did not have weapons of mass destruction. 
I told the world, contrary to your claims, that Iraq had no connection to Al-Qaeda. I told the world, contrary to your claims, that Iraq had no connection to the atrocity on 9-11-2001. I told the world, contrary to your claims, that the Iraqi people would resist a British and American invasion of their country and that the fall of Baghdad would not be the beginning of the end, but merely the end of the beginning. Senator, in everything I said about Iraq, I turned out to be right and you turned out to be wrong. And 100,000 people have paid with their lives, 1,600 of them American soldiers sent to their deaths on a pack of lies, 15,000 of them wounded, many of them disabled forever on a pack of lies. If the world had listened to Kofi Annan, whose dismissal you demanded, if the world had listened to President Chirac. Powerful. And uh, I, I wanted to play that for two reasons. One, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the illegal and unconstitutional invasion of Iraq. Um, but more importantly than that, and that is very important, obviously, and it's tragic, but I think more important is the the lives that are still with us that we could lose if we don't heed the warnings of someone like Mr. Galloway. And you know, I'm, I'm doing everything in my power <laughs> to let it be known that we are once again being sold a pack of lies, as he described it. And this time, the location for those lies is in Ukraine. And it's not an acceptable position to hold, in my estimation, that we are to stand by and allow these lunatics to drag us into World War III, or even to allow them to continue to let this insane losing war in Ukraine to last another minute longer. Well, innocent people die for no reason. And it breaks my heart. And I want as many people as are possibly listening right now to realize that you have enough power and your voice is important and to let them know that you know that this is a lie and you do not support it. And you are not willing to risk World War III for this to decide who gets to rule over the eastern portion of Ukraine. It's a lunatic position to hold and we will not hold it. And I don't hold it. And I think that, you know, when you think about the fact that there is conscription that's happening right now, that you have young men, boys really, that are being drafted, I guess, torn out of their bedrooms, their childhood rooms, and put on the front lines with an expected expiration date of a, of a matter of a few hours, thrown to the trenches a la World War I, for what? For what? To inevitably either lose this war, in which case some corrupt government gets to rule over eastern Ukraine as opposed to the existing corrupt government that does? That's, that's, that's allegedly the worst case scenario, that Putin gets to roll over these places where people have already voted that they would rather be under Russian rule. Oh, God forbid. Or, worst, worst case, it escalates. And you have next time Ukraine accidentally bombs Poland, a NATO protected nation, NATO member, that 
World War III could be upon us. Now, that's truly worst-case scenario. And I just think that the framing of this, the, the fact that we have so many demonstrable lies that we've been told about this conflict, the fact that you have... Uh, go watch my War You Wanted... Or war, the War They Wanted episode. It gives you all of, all of the history... I'm not all of it, but enough for you to say to yourself, my God, what a pack of bullshit. What a bunch of fucking lying scumbags that they would drag us in this direction for no fucking good reason. And for their own benefit, their own purposes, not for ours. And certainly not for the Ukrainians either, mind you. There is no good side in that fight. I'm sorry, there isn't. The Russians or the Ukrainians, the, the government themselves, are not good. They're not. And the American government or NATO offering unlimited funding and arms, they're not good either. None of the governments involved in this are good. There are plenty of good people, individuals, that are dying every day for no fucking reason. And it continues because not enough people are telling the truth about what's happening. Tell the fucking truth. Stand up. Do the right thing. It may be your last chance. Honest to God. It's that important. So, and even if it's not, even if it never comes home to us, still, every day, innocent lives are lost for no good reason in Ukraine. And that's tragic as hell. <sighs> Sorry. That speech was so powerful. That's the type of heroic speech that like you get to hear after the fact, once you've been called a conspiracy theorist and a liar and a you know, Saddam Hussein apologist, all this other nonsense. How often does it turn out that in fact the people labeled accordingly are telling you the truth throughout. I'm telling you the truth. That war is unjust. And it wouldn't be happening if it weren't for America's desires for it to be happening. That's my honest opinion. Well, whatever power we have, let it be known. All right. Please hit the like, comment, and subscribe button. If you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Sign up to become a supporting member. I wanted to say, uh, just mind blown, we're about to surpass the 100 uh, active monthly supporters for the show on my locals. And, you know, that's about 1% of the audience, which is, I guess, standard that uh, you get about 1% of people that, that support you. 1% to 2% is kind of standard. So the fact that uh, so many of you have been willing to do so, uh, I can't name you all off. There's too many of you, but I just wanted to say, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. It's not a huge amount of money, obviously, but um, more than that, it's just, it's enabling me to try and grow the show more aggressively. And and I think that that's, that's a cause worth pursuing. And you guys are, are, uh, are helping in, in that. But also it tells me that there's some people that really value what I'm doing. And that means a lot. Makes me feel good. So thank you guys. Uh, LibertyLockdown.locals.com. And uh, aside from that, if you want to pick up any Liberty Lockdown shirts to become a walking billboard, go to toplops.com. I will be in Washington State this weekend. If you're there, please come out. The following week, I will be in Colorado, both at Liberty on the Rocks as well as uh, the Colorado LP convention. That's April, or excuse me, March 31st through April 1st, something like that. And then three weeks after that, I will be... April 15th, I will be speaking at Students for Liberty up in Clearwater, which is near Tampa Bay. And then the following weekend will be the big one. I will be in Tennessee for 
the Take Human Action Tour Mises Caucus uh, debating destiny on the war in Ukraine. That'll be, you'll see some real fireworks there. <laughs> That's uh, April 22nd. And then the following weekend, I will be in Austin also for the Take Human Action Tour. So only reason I keep bringing it up is because I want you guys to come out and, and meet me. It's always fun to uh, to chop it up with you guys and uh, hugs all around when I see you. Enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell, and I am joined once again by the godmother of finance, Miss Carol Roth. Welcome in. I feel like Godmother makes me sound really fat and old. Can we oh, have like the like the high priestess or the baroness or something like that? <laughs> all right, the high priestess of finance, Carol Roth. She is the author of "The War on Small Business" and the soon-to-be-released "You Will Own Nothing: Your War with the New Financial World Order and How to Fight Back." Well, this is exactly what I talk about on my show very regularly, which is how we fight back. Uh, but before we get into that, will we own nothing and will we be happy, Carol? So, um, you know, those two things are obviously polar opposites. There are certainly a whole lot of folks, you know, as we come to the end of this, uh, you know, late stage financial empire and move towards whatever the next financial world order will be. There are a whole lot of folks who are jockeying to come out on top. And their plan to do that is by, you know, making sure they kind of control all of the resources and make sure that you own nothing. But I'm pretty sure if you go back in history, you look at the folks who have owned nothing, that they were not particularly free and they were not particularly happy. Yeah, well, that's that's my read of history as well. It's odd that so many young people have been convinced otherwise. That uh, you know somehow socialism is is more fair, and that, that they will end up being more free under it. Uh, the psychological operation that has gone into uh, making that a a trend, a, a meme amongst the the younger generation, is probably as as disturbing as any trend that I've witnessed in my lifetime. Uh, do you do you share that sentiment? Is is there something even more disturbing? <laughs> I mean, there are so many things that are disturbing. This could True. be a week-long show. <laughs> you know, I, I give the kids a pass because I do feel like when you are younger, you're very sort of, you know, very much an idealist and everything is great and the government is good and you don't really know better. Obviously, the schools do a piss poor job at financial literacy. Obviously, given the financial scope of many parents, they're not going to be a big help. So I do feel like, you know, when you're in college, you're kind of clueless and you come out in the real world and then things shift. Um, I think it's the, the people who've been out in the real world who are still embracing this concept. I think that that's very scary. And I do wonder if some of that isn't so much the propaganda, but the reality. I mean, all of these forces that have enslaved them with debt on educations that aren't worth a fraction of what they're paying for them, um, delaying their ability to purchase a home, the home values being inflated by the Fed, them competing now with corporations to buy a single family home. You know, they earn more on a inflation adjusted basis, millennials do, than Gen X and Boomer at the same age kind of category you know, before them. But because of all of the debt and because of all of the asset inflation, their wealth is just a fraction of that. So right. I wonder if they're leaning into it just to make them 
themselves feel better, right? Like, oh, this is this is how it's supposed to be. This is because it's good for quote unquote society, whatever that means. And that's part of what I'm trying to educate. And I know you're trying to educate people on. They really need to be fighting those forces and doing everything they can to get that wealth. And the other thing, Clint, is that you know, we have $84.4 trillion that is set to turn over via inheritances in the next, you'll call it 23 years now. Wow. And, you know, it's an opportunity for these young people to maybe inherit some of that wealth and kind of rejigger the system if the government doesn't grab it first. And that's mm -hmm. one big things I'm worried about if you look at the trajectory of their spending, if you look at all of their unfunded liabilities, that's a giant pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I think that's something that if young people don't change their tune and they go, oh, billionaires should get a wealth tax. Well, guess who's going to get the wealth tax? It's going to be you. They're going to have the loopholes and that $84.4 that is set to go to, you know, average middle class people um, in large part that is going to be completely obliterated. Yeah, well, and given if you've looked at the unfunded liabilities of the government, which I know you have, I have. <laughs> uh, it, it will be uh, kind of necessary for them to try and uh, confiscate that money if they're going to stay solvent. And I think that's what we're witnessing with Jerome Powell is, is you know, he... I'm trying to get a read of this, and it's very challenging uh, because he's he's both hiking and loosening simultaneously they're they're guaranteeing depositors on mid and full size or the you know the two two fig two big to fail banks uh but then i i think that there's a, a potential that he stops with the interest rate hiking and like who who is he working for do you know I, I've, I've been calling it an economic circle jerk because everything that's been happening has is being done in opposition you have the fed who's been trying to destruct demand, even though, you know, a lot of our challenges are supply constraints. So instead of going to the government saying, change policy, we're not going to do anything. They're trying to destruct demand. And they're not getting that help again from the government. The government, you know, the Biden's putting out, you know, $7 trillion in spending proposals. I mean, they're spending, spending like drunken sailors, uh, no disrespect meant to the drunken sailors on that. But, you know, that's kind of at odds. And as you mentioned, we have, you know, this supposed quantitative tightening going on at the same time we have quantitative easing. I'm not sure exactly what Powell is trying to do. Uh, certainly, I've always said that you know they have their stated mandate, the stable prices and and you know full employment. But I've always felt that their secret mandate was to enable government spending and to prop up Wall Street. Um, certainly, their behavior of late didn't really seem to go along with that. But I think that they're in their crazy, you know, insanity. They're thinking that if they do this more quickly, then maybe they can move back to that position more quickly and get back to business as usual. Hmm. Um, but it, the, the fact that nobody has stepped up you know, from the Fed or from the government and taken responsibility for what's going on. I mean, the fact that we have a banking crisis is because of the conditions they created, the amount of money, the you know easy, easy money, uh, low interest environment that created you know so much, so many dollars in the system, so many risk taking opportunities. The banks didn't even have the ability to put it to work. That is them messing with the markets, and the fact that they haven't stepped up and said that 
the fact that they haven't pointed a finger at the government and said, this is your problem in multiple ways. You fix it. We don't have the tools this time around. The whole thing is just, just baffling and such a perfect example of why central planning doesn't work, as well as why magic money tree MMT doesn't work either. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I've thought about that a lot. And uh, as far as like why the bankers wouldn't, you know, step out and speak out, um, I think that it's it's basically the same concept of like a a, a capo in the mob. You know, like you don't <laughs> right. you don't talk about the dawn. You know, like because if you do. You know, <laughs> any sort of protection. You got a gay. You got a gay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and that's honestly my read of it. Like the, it's described as a banking cartel. I think it is a cartel. I think that it's it's essentially, uh, you know, like the highest level of of mafia or mafioso lifestyle. They they control uh, who who thrives, who dies. It's uh, it's really dark. And and you know, we were talking earlier about the the youth in this country and how they're turning towards basically the problem and asking the problem to get bigger to solve the problem yeah. and and that won't work and you know i i stand by it that i think that it, as long as we have central banking and more specifically a federal reserve that this problem is only going to persist and get worse and and probably migrate into a central bank digital currency and all these other things that we don't want to see in the world uh is there is there a a band-aid that can actually save us aside from abolition? So I do think there is a path to being saved here. I just don't know that anybody has the backbone to do it. I mean, if you look at the spending of the government before COVID, it was something on the, the range of, I think, oh, actually, I, I have a chart on my desk. Go figure, because I'm such a loser. Um, $4.4 <laughs> trillion that they spent in 2019. You know, if you were to keep that steady and say, okay, you know, we had all this, you know, quote unquote, COVID emergency. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> um, you know, we just kind of need to get back to where we were and you didn't expand the government from there you would have a surplus. You could start paying down debt. You could start you know, really attacking some of these problems. The thing that most people don't understand because they're financially illiterate is that you are paying for this one way or another. Some of it's direct, so you can see it, but a lot of it is indirect with your purchasing power being eroded and the ability for you to not buy a home anymore. All of these kind of secret things that have been done that people don't understand is coming out of the spending, coming out of the government policy, coming out of the monetary policy. And I do think there is a path to scale that back. I'm not sure that there's a lot we can do to undo um, some of the mistrust that we have caused on the world stage the fact that the U.S. government and the Fed together have weaponized the dollar, the fact that uh, countries around the world don't want to deal with that anymore. And I think that's going to shift you know, the balance of power at least somewhat. But I do think that we could stem the tide and, and create a situation with more prosperity for everyone and preserve the American dream. But who are the politicians who are going to go in and do the heavy work and tell the truth and say, this isn't going to be there for you. Like, you know, that Saturday right. Night Live skit with Dan Aykroyd, you know, everyone's going to be a millionaire. Wouldn't you like to drive a, you know, $100,000 car and wear a $10,000 suit? You know, because, you know, it, you think, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'd love to have that. But 
the reality is that you are in your bank account a millionaire with an N, and <laughs> people don't understand that you know kind of appreciate that distinction. Apparently, they did back in the seventies. They could do that in a skit comedy show. Today, you would just get blank stares and a bunch of people being like, "I, I have no idea what you're talking about." Right. Well, and then the the modern comedic analogy would be the uh, the South Park, and it's gone. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I'm very, I'm very concerned about that. But um, yeah, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you already brought up the fact that we've been using, or the U.S. government has been using the the U.S. dollar as a weapon, and yeah. and what we witnessed over the past week, and this is good timing uh, for having you on, is that it's great, uh, it's great timing. Everyone yes. loves a good bank crisis, don't they? <laughs> Indeed. Um, but I, I think that the the mo most underreported aspect of this is that. You know, Xi Jinping and, and Putin met just over the past 48 hours where they were uh, very openly discussing that this is what this is. This is what this alliance is about, is that the, the U.S. has weaponized the U.S. dollar and and yeah. Putin has said that they're going to be trading uh, many of their goods in Yuan moving forward. And I mean, what we've seen over the past 20 years when it came to Saddam Hussein and, and Gaddafi in Yemen or uh, in Libya, uh, there's. There's a long track record of, you know, quote unquote dictators. Or at least they become dictators after they uh, stop trading their goods <laughs> in dollars. Um, but now, now the the Saudis have also negotiated a peace with Iran, uh, with uh, China as the peace broker, and and it seems to me that there is a real block of nations, and not a small one by any stretch of the imagination, constituting well over half the global population that is now deciding that they are going to migrate away from the U.S. dollar. And if that's the case. I see the U.S. dollar coming home from all of the domestic trading, and then it being an extraordinarily hyperinflationary force. Uh, am I wrong in any of that, Reed? So, I mean, obviously, there is a trajectory, and then there are things that can shift that can change the baseline trajectory. But of from course. a trajectory standpoint, I'm very aligned with your thinking. If you look at what Russia did before they invaded Ukraine, they were basically lightening up on their treasury reserves as well as their other central banking reserves, and they were stocking up on gold. Well, if you go and you look at what China's been doing over the past couple of years, have you seen this movie before? They have been lightening up on their treasury reserves and they've been stocking up on gold. Um, I don't feel like this is a coincidence. I don't think that this is something that's just like, oh yeah, now's a nice time. I think this is very intentional. And I do think in terms of the dollar standing as the reserve currency, um, you know, from a, a global standpoint, I can't tell you if it's going to be blocks of, of you know, alliances or, you know, some other, um, you know, gold or precious metals backed basket of currency. But the idea that the dollar is going to continue to hold the strength after we have taken these actions to weaponize it and with all of these other forces that are looking to come in and, and kind of assert their power, I think that's, you know, sort of foolhardy. And I will say that not every war brings about a new financial world order but every modern new financial world order has come after a major war. So if you look well, at if you look at the Dutch and you look at the British and you look at you know, the U.S., that has all been preceded by war. So just in terms of the trajectory 
that we are on and what we are setting up because the government and Fed has been derelict in their duties in protecting the stability of the dollar, both domestically and on the world stage, which, by the way, is a huge cluster. I mean, usually it's a trade off, right? It's like, oh, well, we're going to protect the people at home and let the people of the world suffer or we're going to you know, keep the stable on the world stage and we have some domestic strife. They've managed to do neither, which is like that's just an, an incredible set of uh, clownery that's come out here. But, um, you know, to think that we can sustain what we're doing is just you, you would have to completely dis, uh, suspend any sort of belief in reality. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in our country who have suspended um, belief in reality a long time ago and think that you can you know, suck unicorn farts um, out and there's going to be rainbows that you know kind of happen when you do that. So. that that's, that's Fed policy. I read it just yesterday. <laughs> unicorn farts. Well, yeah. And, and your point about you know World War usually preceding a, a change in you know global hegemony or, or the the currency that's being utilized, I, that's my concern. But I think what the obviously the interesting and novel factor is that there are nuclear weapons involved, which makes war uh, both less likely, but also far more cataclysmic. And sure. and I, I instead of asking you whether or not you think we're going to end up in World War Three, <laughs> because who the hell knows? Let's pray yeah. not. Um, I, I'm just curious if you think that that the we can actually get through that that period without the historical trend line staying intact of there needing to be a war that precedes a transition? <laughs> I mean, there needs to be some sort of major event, right? I don't think people, I don't see a situation where everyone in the U.S. just comes to the table and cedes power without there being some massive conflict. And we know that the people who are in charge are super sketchy. And we know that the, um, you know, sort of the, the weapons industry um, is a major one. So I am not particularly optimistic on that bad scenario. I tend to be leaning into a, a worse scenario. It, it could be different. It could be cyber. It could just be some weird, you know, long drawn out, you know, set of shenanigans. I'm 100% not a war expert. I don't play one on TV. I rarely even play Risk with my husband at home. <laughs> so, you know, Risk is that, a great this, game, though. Yeah. That, you know, it, it's, it's not what I know, but I do know the financial side of this and, you know, have studied it. And by the way, I have laid it out in my new business or in my new book coming out in July. You will have nothing. Um, but, yeah, I just I just don't see like where you're getting everybody to the table on a friendly base and then going, you know, we don't really want to like, you know, finance your government spending at like low to no costs anymore. We don't really think that's a good thing. You know, we're going to go back to gold. We're going to have this alliance over here. Oh, by the way, you know, we have tons of natural resources and you idiots are moving away from them. You know, whatever it is, like, I just don't feel like there's some big you know, kumbaya session that's going to happen. Right. So I, I feel like when that starts moving in the opposite direction, as the U.S. does, you know, they're going to do everything they can to hold on to that power. And if the dollar is no longer a weapon, then I think that weapons become the weapon, unfortunately. Yes. Well said again. Um, so I, I wanted to ask a little bit about like what the trajectory is for 
the global population bust that that we're facing because there's there's a lot of concerns about you know demographics uh, basically the yeah. entire social safety net of most nations not just western nations but most nations is uh you know predicated on a ponzi scheme where right. you have young young working people that pay to take care of the the older the infirmed and um it, because so many nations are now having a population decline or at least it's not it's just barely replacing the existing population that's really not adequate because the government doesn't actually yeah. do what they're supposed to do with that money uh, how how do we get through that is it is it possible to get through that or are they going to have to austerity and and do what they're doing in France where they raise the retirement age and things like that i mean there is the um <laughs> <laughs> the common sense approach to it, which would be, again, to be straightforward, have to change the system. Um, you know, the, uh, looking at the U.S., it's insane when we know how much wealth the older generations have and, you know, how much better they've had it in terms of their ability to create wealth and hold on to assets to ask the younger generations to now, you know, basically give up more wealth to help support them. I mean, that's that's a that's a pretty huge ask even by, you know, yeah. social collective standards. So I don't really see that happening. Um, well, especially especially after that generation got rich by essentially stealing the future from the from the young and uh, now now they're gonna steal their present too. Ex exactly. I mean that that's um that's a, a lot of cojones <laughs> to have to to be able to make that ask. I think in places like China, uh, which has a huge population problem, and one of the reasons I've always thought that, you know, in terms of them becoming sort of a full world superpower, that that's probably not going to happen either. Um, you know, they also have on top of that, this, you know, this stupid one child policy that left them with a lot of young men that have no partners. Now, I'll ask you, Clint, because I think you know a little bit more about history of war. But what happens when you have a bunch of young men who can't find wives that are hanging out all by themselves? What do what do they do with their free time? What kind of things? How is that uh, going to play out? <laughs> I, I think oftentimes that ends in in revolution or or right. in, yeah, or in war. Um, war unrest, right? All yeah. those kinds of things. I mean, that's not a good situation. So I do think that having the situation where you have um, you know these this kind of population shift and these these massive old popu older populations that are looking to suck up more resources even though they have had you know every opportunity to um, be at the top of the game i do think that could lead to social unrest and we know how quickly social unrest ends up turning into other things. So that is something that could also be a catalyst in kind of this broader um, shift towards this new financial world order. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, the title of your book being You Will Own Nothing, it's it's obviously taken from the, the World Economic Forum ad that was uh, quite famous a few years back and then they, they backpedaled off of it. Oh, we never meant any of that, but... Um, I'm just curious. <laughs> did you get into the to the history of the World Economic Forum? I did. And, okay. Could I you did. could you give my audience a little bit of that? Yeah. So it, it's um, basically all came from this guy Klaus Schwab, uh, who is an engineer and is yes, nuttier than yes, a jar, <laughs> nuttier than a jar of peanut butter, in my estimation. <laughs> and so he has always had this idea. You know, he's I don't know. Austrian, German, something like that. One of those crazy sets of people. Just, <laughs> just, just kidding, folks. Uh, but he is, he is, he is nuts. But anyway, he's always been on this idea of stakeholders. That businesses need to be run for stakeholders. 
whoever the heck stakeholders are. You know, we've always been taught that businesses stakeholders are their shareholders, people who have actual stakes in the company, some some sort of skin in the game, not right. like every random person in the world. Um, but so he started pushing this idea in books. At the same time, he came up with this kind of European management forum. And he was trying to use the forum to push his books and his ideas. And then a lot of sort of geopolitical events all happened in the early 70s. You know, we went off the gold standard. There was the Yom Kippur War. There was the um, uh, oil embargo uh, from Saudi Arabia and the uh, Arab oil producing countries and then the resolution of that. So like geopolitics like sort of moved to the forefront and he really moved into that and said, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I can get like some of these people. And so he started inviting business and political leaders into what was really a European management forum. And eventually that changed into the World Economic Forum. And they have been able to create relationships with, you know, all different kinds of elite from you know, massive organizations. They're very entrenched with the UN to a lot of high level people in business and politics. There is video of Schwab at Harvard at the Kennedy School, basically talking about how he has this young leaders program mm -hmm. and he develops these young people and then he penetrates cabinets throughout the world. I mean, this is, you can see the video, you can see him saying this, this is not a conspiracy theory this is very well documented and so now he is like with i mean kudos to him for the persistence and the utter determination because we're talking like early 70s he just keeps rebranding the same stupid idea over and <laughs> over again with different packages and eventually he found you know some way he like got in with the right set of people at the right time he found a way to make it stick and the challenge with the World Economic Forum is that it's gotten to be so big and so high profile that people don't even understand what they're going to. There is a lot of useful idiots, and I'm going to throw myself under the bus. I was a useful idiot. Ten years ago, I had a friend who said, hey, there's this cool thing called the World Economic Forum. They're having this big thing in New York all these really interesting speakers, you should come, you can blog about it and tweet about it, and maybe they'll have you as a speaker next time. Okay, mm. that sounds great. I didn't know anything about it. You know, this sure. is kind of early, early Twitter days and whatnot. And so I'm blogging about the World Economic Forum, not knowing any of like kind of the crazy stuff beneath the surface. And I think that's what they do is they get all these people involved and they trade off of, oh, look, this person's here. Look, this person's here. And a lot of the people are just like, I have no idea. In fact, one of the concepts that's come out of there, which I'm sure your audience knows all about, ESG, there are so many people, including CEOs, including CEOs of publicly traded companies that don't even know that ESG is tied to the World Economic Forum or what exactly it means. And I have recently heard from somebody who is running ESG at a publicly traded company that they've never even heard of the World Economic Forum. So that's kind of the power here is that they're Jeez. able to disseminate these ideas and nobody's connecting the dots, you know, how, how this came to be, how these like crazy things came to be, how all these same 
kind of cast of characters keep popping up around all of these crazy ideas and around a lot of things that have gone sideways, right. um, like, you know, Sri Lanka, for example, which I exactly. talk about as well. So, um, so that's a little bit of the, the WEF history, but like, if there's a bad idea or if there's an idea that involves reshaping or rethinking something guaranteed, like they're at the center of it. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, I've made ESG a huge part of my show for the past year and a half since I really wrapped my head around what it was. And obviously the World Economic Forum was was responsible for popularizing it. It was a UN initiative in like 0405, but then it uh, in the 1112 arena. Back to the 90s, if you well, did. Right. 90s under a different name. And that's the thing. It's like, oh, this name's not working. Sustainable, whatever is not working. Let's repackage yes. it as this. Oh, let's repackage it as ESG. And you're absolutely right. UN to WEF to BlackRock. And oh, now we've got a champion. Here we go. Bingo. Yes. and And for those that are... Uh, wanting the next cutting edge terminology, it it will be UN Sustainable Development Goals. It's SDGs. So yes. they're they're going to rebrand. Another one, impact impact yes. investing. That's yep. another impact huge one investing. I'm seeing that's popping up as well. So yeah, so uh, that's why you know I, I I always have to pair my optimism about all this pushback I'm seeing against ESG with some pessimism that these sons of bitches are very creative <laughs> with their branding and and that you know well. <laughs> well, uh, DeSantis is finally, uh, you know, bringing people together to push back against central bank digital currencies and ESG. They're going to just name something else and roll them out under a different brand. But I, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, you were talking about the useful idiots that, that show up there. Uh, it does seem to me that it is essentially just a a cocktail party for, you know, the most wealthy and powerful people on earth. And I just, for the life of me, though, I can't figure out why anyone would give Klaus that honor of being the guy like is it just his persistence like well, how did he actually get these people to to start to show up and then to i mean i can understand like once you get the snowball rolling all right now you have all of the biggest yeah. you know, titans of industry but like how did he get it going in the first place it doesn't make any sense to me yeah i mean again it was sort of europe i think they're a little bit more um forgiving like oh you know here's a weirdo well we work with weirdos <laughs> all the time you know whatever we're not gonna say anything about that and then eventually maybe it sounded exotic you know if you think about back in the 70s like europe and and the us weren't as connected you know you couldn't right. you know, kind of get around <laughs> as well as you did certainly there was no internet you know there wasn't even personal computers in every home so um i i think that my guess is it was like oh well let's go to europe for this interesting conference and mm -hmm. then oh well this person went now this person goes and then right. this person goes and then it just kind of everybody goes. And then of course they have it in this like super fancy location. So everyone just wants to go because it's a boondoggle to a, a super fancy location and it sounds exotic and oh, my company is gonna pay for me to go to Davos and I'm gonna be a big wig. And so I think that's kind of how it happens. You know how, like, do you, do you know the book Billion Dollar Whale? I don't actually know that one. Okay, so first of all, fantastic book. Shout out to my friend Tom Wright who wrote it. So that's about this guy Joe Lowe, who was involved in um, you know one of the biggest financial scams in history, the One MDB Fund, which was basically the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, mm -hmm. and basically it involves the U.S. government and it involves Goldman Sachs and all these different players. They ended up like basically fleecing all of this money, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's a huge fraud. And Joe Lowe was this kind of, you know, portly guy from 
Malaysia or China that went to my alma mater, Wharton. We get a lot of weirdos who go there, but whatever. And he basically bought his way in to the inner circle of celebrities. And he was hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio and Paris Hilton and Alicia Keys. And he's gifting people, you know, art and pianos and yachts. And so, you know, if you're somebody who has that desire and a sociopathic, you know, there's a way to buy your way into some level of celebrity. And then once you're the guy who's hanging out with all these people, other people naturally want to come in, you know, it gives you some level of credibility. So I would imagine that it's, you know, kind of the same scenario here that, you know, he, he bought his way in, you know, with some circle of people and right. that those that yeah that gives the credibility to the attract more proofing. people exactly social proof and as i said i think that a lot of the people maybe even most of the people who go there or involved even people who are young global leaders literally have no idea they're going there to make business deals they're going there because they think it looks nice on their resume they're going there because they get to go to davos and the company's and whatever it is I think that the greater, greater majority has no idea what's going on. It's just those handful of people who are in the inner circle, who are really well connected, who are now taking those ideas out and bringing them into the world. Like the fact that the, you know, you've got Larry Fink, who's got, you know, at the last time I checked, I know it's gone down, but it was something like $10 trillion under management. It's nine. BlackRock, yeah, nine, (laughs) whatever it is. Um, but, you know, the fact that he controls investment decisions and has a huge impact on business, you know, I'm sure that's a reason why you get the business roundtable, which has the CEOs of, you know, the biggest public companies to sign on to these principles. And then, like, once they've done that and every publicly traded company now is ESG on their website, well, then it kind of just trickles down from yes. there. So it really just takes a handful of very powerful people um, to start to seed and entrench these ideas, you know, then that you get the profiteers and the racketeers involved, the people who, oh, I can be an ESG consultant or I can put ESG on my fund and make more money. And then you get the useful idiots who get the, the what I call the ROE, the return on ego, the clout. They get to put, you know, ESG in their bios and a little right, like right, emoji, right. you know, whatever environmental emoji, whatever that looks like. I'm not an um, evil capitalist. I'm here to save the world. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's how it all works. Yeah. Well, and and I think that this is something people need to understand, too, is that um, essentially the incentives are are terribly misaligned because you as a fiduciary to your shareholders, you kind of have to put yourself in the in the in that room because like you're you have to have access to BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard's yeah. capital. So you have to signal that you're in this in-group, even if you're not. Otherwise, you you won't have the biggest investment managers in the world willing to purchase shares of your company. So it it, it has forced people that I think would otherwise be strictly concerned with innovation and profits and like the the old school what capitalism is supposed to be. And now they they have to rub elbows with these commies to to just try and get you know their share price up. Am I misreading it at all? No. Well, in fairness to Vanguard, they also they they've been trying to distance themselves True. and have not fully extracted themselves, but basically have said in certain scenarios um, that you know we don't think that this is something that makes sense, and so right. we're going to move away from that. So. Yay, Vanguard. Well done. And keep moving in that direction because it's not a full extraction. So we have to give credit where credit is due. 
but that is the case. And, and that's, you know, where it becomes very mafia-esque. I feel like that's like a recurring theme that we have going on here. Yes. Uh, but, you know, when, if you're BlackRock and you say that I'm going to hold you to ESG standards and they have the capital, you know, they have nine or $10 trillion under management and they're, you know, one of the top investors um, out of, as you said, three companies and basically every company that's publicly traded, you don't have a lot of other options. And so right. you can't afford um, to, you know, kind of piss them off. And, you know, Bloomberg came out with an article that basically said as much, like they are the ones that shepherded this, that created this as a thing because they wanted to create this as a thing so they can. And, you know, part of the issue is the level of distractions that it creates. So not only is it not fair for the shareholder and the fiduciary who um, is, is supposed to be protecting the duty of the person who's put in their capital at risk, but it's really challenging for the management who has so many things to worry about already. And now they have to worry about this ESG, which by the way, isn't even a standardized thing. It's a, it's a moving goalpost based on the whims of whatever the elite feels like is okay on that particular day. Yes. I mean, I'd shared a, a tweet, um, you know, months ago and kind of revisited it that, you know, after Elon Musk decided he was going to take over Twitter, all of a sudden he was persona non grata and Tesla got kicked out of, I believe it was Morningstar's ESG, right. you know, top whatever number fund, but Exxon was left in there, which again, exactly. I mean, I don't think that it's a problem, but just by their own rules, the fact that, oh, well, we don't like him. So we're going to use this business social credit against him. Exactly. It was very, very transparent. And I think that people really need to wake up that you've got the elite setting up what they want, and then they're using your capital to push these political and social agendas. If you look at Europe, the amount of times they have changed, you know, things just to, to bend to the rules. Weapons were outside of ESG. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't invest in weapons. Oh, Ukraine war. Well, maybe we should rethink whether that should be ESG. Yep. Okay, we can't have, you know, gas and nuclear. Oh, well, we're having an energy crisis. Well, if you do these couple of things, then it's ESG. I mean, they're literally making it up as they go along. Yeah. And again, this should be very transparent. It should be called out. And this needs to be completely snuffed out in principle, not just by the name, because as you mentioned, these are little cockroaches that will never die. They will keep, you know, shape, <laughs> shape shifting and changing their, um, their skin. So. Yeah. It, it's, I'm, I'm so glad you made that point because I think that a lot of the, the useful idiots at the consumer level, the voting level, the democracy level, they don't understand that this is not something that's actually going to solve climate change and all this stuff. It's like, <laughs> it's about money and power. It's the same story as has always been told and the people at the highest levels of power and the highest levels of wealth, they want more of both. That's, that's really what this is. Um, I, I think that it, the, an interesting, um, you know, whether or not it's exactly uh, connected or if it's just a coincidence, but I'm curious what your thoughts are right after Occupy Wall Street, it seems to me that the world economic forum and the ESG meme really takes hold. And I think that it's because the biggest financial managers realized that this was a, a, culpability removal mechanism where they just got mm -hmm. to say like yes we got bailed out 0809 you guys are all furious at us but we're we're listening to you now we're going yes. to fix climate change please don't hang us that's my read of it is it that simple 
So I, I did actually identify this um, as a, a potential like to rehab their image. So, right. Oh, we're going to rehab our image. So we're going to be more concerned about these things that you care about. And so that was a sort of an entree for the people who've been trying to push this for a long time to say, oh, well, here's a good PR opportunity for you. Everyone will think that you're great. I don't think anyone sort of had um, an idea that it would become as big as it is, except for the people who were pushing to make it so. Exactly. And and so do you think that that was intentional? Like, do you think that they actually sat down and were like, man, how are we going to get these guys to stop, you know, threatening to loot our, our Chase Bank and stuff like that? Because it seems to me like the timing is pretty spot on. So I always say, if it's not intentional, it was deliberate. Okay, okay. <laughs> fair, fair deliberate. Enough. I think it, deliberate is we're going to set this in motion for some you know particular reason. It may not be the ultimate outcome or it may not have the full scope of nefarious purposes, but it wasn't like they accidentally stumbled in the stars aligned. I think they deliberately moved yeah. in that direction. Well, and I think, I think Klaus was extraordinarily fortunate that you know, he he had just gotten to the high high enough level of influence, and then this thing that he had been pushing really just served his masters perfectly. Like they were like, "Oh my god!" Like, yes, this is it. This is how we get all these Marxist college kids that are drowning in debt to think that they're they're now our allies. Like uh, the you have the left that is convinced that like the highest levels of finance are their allies. Carol, how is so, this even possible? It's okay, genius. So so, so in my upcoming book, you will own nothing, which you need to go pre-order so that you can own everything. Um, I actually do reference it, it this really great Twilight Zone episode that's called "To Serve Man." I don't know if you're a vintage Twilight Zone person. Clint, I may have but, seen it, but I don't remember. Okay, so basically, these aliens come down to Earth, and the you know people of Earth are are suspicious. What do they want? And they say, listen, we see that you're starving and that you have wars and we have all these technologies that can fix it. And, and we really just, you know, want to help you out. And everyone's like, you don't want to help us out, whatever. So, um, you know, they decide they're going to go interrogate the guy and put him up to a, uh, the alien, put him up to a lie detector. And he leaves behind his like playbook. And they have this group that's decoding the playbook. And they, they, they try and get it. Finally, they get the title. And the title is to serve man. So they go, oh, well, that's, you know, really consistent with what he said. That sounds great. They're, they said they want to do this. They said the book says that they're here to serve man. So that that sounds great. And so they open themselves up to the aliens and the technology starts to work and everyone gets really excited. And they start making visits to the aliens home planet. And part of the group that cracks the code decides, well, you know, I'm going to go to the alien's home planet. So as he's going to board the spaceship, one of the code crackers goes, you know, hey, hey, you know, wait, I cracked the rest of the code to serve man is a cookbook. Oh, shit. <laughs> and so that's sort of what's been rolling around my head this whole time is to serve man is a cookbook. Just remember that. Just re like that. That puts everything into perspective. Yeah. Is this is yes? They're looking. They're looking to serve you. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Just literally. <laughs> not anything that you want. You're right. on the menu, folks. Yes, exactly. Um. All right. Well, and uh, am I mistaken? But I think that Klaus and the early versions of the World Economic Forum were actually the big global cooling and the new ice age uh, theorists. <laughs> 
and then they migrated into you know climate change and global warming. Um, I, I mean, maybe I don't know if you even looked into that, but I, I thought I read that somewhere. I, I didn't because I was more financial scope. I didn't okay. make that specific time, but I will tell you, Mark Perry from American Enterprise Institute, who is a national treasure, everybody should follow his stuff. He's the one who puts out that great chart that shows how everything the government involved in is like, you know, hugely exceeding inflation and everything that they're not in is like below inflation. He's right. wonderful, but he put out a list of like, you know, 50 or 100 years, some insane amount of time of failed climate predictions. And mm -hmm. I did recount some of those, you know, the, the number of times we were running out of oil, that Manhattan was going to be underwater. I mean, yep. just in our lifetimes, I mean, how many times, Clint, have we, have we shifted from paper bags to plastic to paper, you know, for right. whatever the reason of the day is. So there's just this litany of, you know, here's when you are going to die and the earth is going to die and they just keep changing it. It's like in this, in this season of how you're going to die on the earth, you know, here's our plot line that we're going to follow. And for whatever reason, you know, nobody holds them to account. It Whoa. just that goes, yeah, yeah, I'm just not going to buy into this. Yeah. Anymore. Well, I, I think, I mean, that's, uh, people say this a lot, but I don't think people take it seriously enough. It is definitionally a doomsday cult. Like that's, that's, <laughs> right. and, and, and they just, they just reassert a new date every time they're wrong. I mean, Al Gore is still a respected scion of climate change and the motherfucker's wrong about everything. Man, I mean, bear, pig. <laughs> the man, bear, pig. Yes. Man, bear, pig. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's spend the last, uh, 15 minutes or so that we have left, uh, together to discuss how we, how we prevail, how the, how the little guy prevails. Cause I, I have a lot of lot of listeners that are the little guy, and they they always are asking me for advice. And I, I'm sure that uh, your book it probably ends in that direction. So yes. how do how do we prevail in in light of what I think is global fascism? So basically, do the opposite of what they want you to do. If they're telling you that you should own nothing, then logically you should own everything. And I think that people need to be very intentional about their lifestyles and change from, you know, leaning into expenses and spending into accumulation of assets, particularly hard assets, things mm -hmm. that are going to be harder for you know, the people of the world to get. I'm personally a fan of precious metals that you hang on to as long as you get it somewhere reputable. Um, you know, things like land, particularly land that has a productive use is a good thing. You know, guns, ammunition, anything that's you know tradable when things go south. And then I do think you know, one of the, the challenges here that we have is that we just don't know the duration, right? We know the trajectory, but we don't know how long this is going to take. And yep. you know, after Bretton Woods was put in place, it took 15 years for a new financial system to fully take hold and for that shift to be made. So, you know, this could be something that's quick, but this could be a really long, drawn out, chaotic process. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to miss out um, on any capital appreciation opportunities elsewhere, particularly, you know, if we're in um, you know, periods of, of high inflation where you're going to need that to keep up. So I do think, I mean, diversification always makes sense. So it's not like I'm coming up with some big novel idea here. Right. But particularly now to protect yourself, I do think you need to be diversified, but diversified around ownership, you know, owning stock, whether it's in a business that you own, a business that you work for, 
um, you know, the companies that have big moats around them that are going to be necessary even when things go sideways. Mm -hmm. I think that you know having that is um, something that's important, and then having some metals, having some land, having real estate, <laughs> having having guns and Campbell's soup and you know, some right. whiskey, all those kinds of things. Well, so it you're... really it's it's all it's always like it's very simple. It's just not easy to do. Yes. Well, and you're sounding exceedingly libertarian, Carol, and I'm, I'm thrilled to hear. Uh, but but my libertarian audience will will undoubtedly note that you did not mention Bitcoin in that. Uh, is there a reason? So here's my thing is that I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I also don't feel like I have enough data to be able to recommend it. So this is what That's I say right. about Bitcoin is that I think the mission of Bitcoin and moving away from a decentralized currencies is important. I think that Bitcoin has a lot of question marks and hurdles um, in terms of you know the technology where technology goes, quantum computing, the people who maintain the rails to ensure that Bitcoin is up to date. The fact that the infrastructure that crypto has been leaning on is the dollar in the U.S. banking system. So until that infrastructure is standalone and a little bit um, outside of the realm of what we're seeing now, you know, a lot of the, the issues that we're having, um, you know, in some of these banks you know, relate to crypto. We've had a lot of fraud. We've had a lot of, of issues. I, I think that, that, that that's an issue. And then the biggest issue is obviously the U.S. government does not want to, to cede control to you. And so they don't seem to be focused on physical gold at all. <laughs> they seem to be focused entirely on crypto and making sure that doesn't come to bear. And they do have a big military and lots of weapons and things like that. So, you yeah. know, it's got it's got a 15 year social contract. It may be the answer. A different crypto may be the answer. I just don't know. I think it's worth keeping an eye on. Um, yeah, I totally sure. understand why some people are into it just for me and where I am in my life, it just, I, I can't pull that trigger, but I understand why other people do. And I just, my answer to people who like it is just make sure that you're well-informed and you stay on top of it. And also that you just stay diversified, that you don't have all of your eggs in one basket. And it's really funny. God tell you guys this. Everyone's always like, oh, well, Bitcoin is the gold standard for crypto. Well, you could have the gold standard. You could literally have gold. So right. make sure gold is sexy. Mr. T liked it. Scrooge McDuck liked it. John <laughs> Wick liked it. I don't know how it got into this like oh old guy on you know some conservative <laughs> network thing. But it's pretty sexy. If you go to like any you know, action movie, they always have the vault of gold bars. So just make sure you you do both. Like if you're like oh you know I don't believe in centralization, then just like diversify some of that decentralization as well. And so again, I I, I, yeah. I don't I don't say no to Bitcoin. I just personally don't have enough conviction to be able to say, mm, this has enough data for me to, to say, yeah, this is going to be the future. Well, I, and I, I think I do have enough data to say that uh, the exchanges are extraordinarily dangerous. So if you are going to be a Bitcoin player, uh, you know, not your keys, not your coin, you have to actually own it, just as you were talking about ownership. Yes. You have to actually, you know, cold storage, uh, take it off the exchanges by any means necessary because it's it's going to we're going to see more and more of these kind of Ponzi exchanges that that go bust in my estimation. 
Um, and, and we've already seen plenty. So I don't know if I need to continue to warn people. It's like it's quite obvious that many of these uh, exchanges are run in a very reckless fashion, very similar to the banking system, which right. I think is, is ran in an even more <laughs> reckless fashion. But they have the backstop of the printing press and the central bank. So they you know persist, whereas the exchanges go bust. Um, well, any uh, any closing notes as to you know reasons for optimism? So look, when we say we believe in the U.S. dollar is backed by the the full faith in the U.S. government, it's not actually backed by the full faith in the government. It's backed by the full faith in the productivity of the American people. Because at the end of the day, the government produces nothing, and we produce everything. And right. even though our productivity has been uh, slipping. Overall, we have a lot of, you know, really great people who do really interesting things and still, even though our framework is messed up, you know, a lot more freedoms right now today than a lot of places around the world. There's no clear competitor that's coming in with this, you know, great individualist, um, you know, pro-freedom, pro-property rights kind of model. So, like, we have the ability to take it back. But, Lord, we need to act fast. We need to dig deep. We need to remove that cancer. I mean, this is a big deal. We can save things. And we have a lot of smart people. I mean, Clint here, like, kudos to you. Thank you so much for leading the charge and, like, these amazing oh, conversations that you host. And just, you know, all the wonderful people out there who believe these things we all have different abilities to take action. So I think if we all leverage what it is that we are good at and you know are more intentional about doing more things to save this and not just being like, well, there's part of me that just kind of wants to see this all burn down. Because right, there's part of all of us that just wants to see this all burn down. It's just yeah. easier. But if, if we just put that little devil, take him off the shoulder, put him aside and like really try to do something here, it's, while it's not probable, it's possible. It's hard. But yes. I think we we owe it to the founding fathers, to the concepts of individual rights and the American dream to try. I mean, yes. you know, they would look at us and say we're a bunch of pussies. So I, I don't completely think agree. I don't think that's great. I don't think, you know, I don't think I want Ben Franklin going, guys <laughs> are a bunch of pussies. So anyway, just just keep that in mind. There is a path here. Educate yourself, educate other people. And, yes. um, you know, let's let's work individually together. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I'm I'm not at all surprised that you and I have come to so, such similar conclusions. And I think that I'll just add to that, that, you know, tell the truth, tell the fucking truth. There are yeah. so few people out there that are willing to to tell the truth of what we face and, and how we can get through it. And, and also I'll add, you know, it's not enough to destroy. We must build, we must create, we must innovate. We must find ways to outcompete these people. I mean, they are a, it's an oligarchy. It's, it's uh, immersed in bureaucracy. Like that is our competitive advantage. We are small, we are nimble, we are innovative. We don't have to play by their rules. We don't have to listen to what they say. We can actually do all of the things that they can't do. And, and once you identify your competitive advantage, you must capitalize on it. That's entrepreneurialism 101. And, yes. uh, and I think that entrepreneurialism at the end of the day will probably be what gets us through. And one of the, the best out there, make sure you pick up both of her books, The War on Small Business, as well as coming out in July. You will own nothing. You can pre-order it now. 
Miss Carol Roth, the scion of finance, <laughs> the goddess herself has joined us once again. Thank you for, for the time, Carol. Thanks so much, Clint. Appreciate it. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?